everybody. I'm Karen Hartglass. You're listening to It's All About Food. Thank you for joining me. I'm probably going to talk very fast because I have a lot of questions for my most excellent guest, Dr. Joel Furman. You've heard me say it many, many times, my favorite doctor. If you're new to this podcast and you're not familiar with Dr. Joel Furman, he has created what is called the Nutritarian Diet, a plant-based diet based on the principles of eating nutrient-rich foods, which unleashed the body's tremendous ability to heal, achieve optimal weight, and slow the aging process. These are whole foods that are natural foods, not heavily processed. Dr. Furman's Nutritarian Diet features foods for optimal health, G-bombs, greens, beans, onions, mushrooms, berries, and seeds, and no salt oil, or sugar. I've had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Furman numerous times, and I've included the links to those episodes on this podcast page. Welcome to It's All About Food. Well, thank you. I'm excited to be here. Long overdue. Long overdue. I agree. Well, you're welcome to talk anytime on this podcast. It's an open invitation. A lot of my listeners know about you, know about the Nutritarian Diet. I thought In addition to finding out about the latest research and development, especially with heart disease and maybe cancer, maybe we could talk a little bit about when people are following your recommendations, but they still have problems. And I can be a little specific about that for me as an example. Okay, you know I'm an ovarian cancer survivor. That's long over. Back in 2006, it's been 17 years. I'm thriving. Woo-hoo! But I have high cholesterol between 240 and 260. You've always told me to not worry about it. And it's nice not to have to worry about it. <laughs> but I am concerned. You once recommended that I get oxidized LDL tests. I haven't been able to get it yet, but I'm working on it. And I have a calcium scan scheduled for next month. So I'm kind of interested to see if there's anything there. But do you have anything to say about someone who is following as best they can your recommendations, but still has these out of the recommended ranges for heart results? Well, well, the first thing, you know, obviously we're not just talking about you right now. I'd say exactly if they're saying the best they can, usually it's because they're not following it properly or good enough. That's okay. most often. And the way, and especially you determine a body fat percent. Because we certainly want the body fat percent to be favorable. And if the cholesterol is still high, we may want to be a little more aggressive at making sure the body fat percent is more favorable. Now, I generally say that for a male to be healthy, his body fat should be below 15%. And for a female to be healthy, her body fat should be below 25%. But that doesn't mean those numbers are some strict you know, demarcation zone where one below is good and above is bad. There's a gray area in between. And some women who still have high cholesterol should through more exercise and more dietary rigor, rigor should maybe get their body fat to 23 or 24%, a little lower if they could, if it would improve their cholesterol. And we're talking about it's body fat, not dietary fat. Mm-hmm. It's body fat. Then the next thing is, is that for many women with cholesterol, a little bit over 200, 200, 220, 230, it's not a risk factor because their oxidized LDL is favorably low because they're eating right and they're, and they're and they're exercising regularly, and those are, and some so it would not be a significant risk. And generally speaking, you know, even a calcium score is not a good indicator of risk. Mm. 
let's just discuss that for a minute. Okay, is good. that a calcium score represents old plaque that's been there for decades that has now calcified. It represents your dietary habits 20, 30 years ago, not your dietary habits right now. The dangerous plaques are softer plaques that are not visible to calcium testing. They're not even visible to, to coronary, to, um, to, to stress testing or cardiac catheterization, which just looks at the size of the lumen because it's the softness of the juvenile plaque that abuts the lumen that makes the endothelial lining could more crack, exposing the soft cholesterol-laden fat to the to the blood vessels, causing a platelet platelets to clot together and to form a clot. The medical term for a clot is called a thrombus, and a thrombus or a clot are the, are the cause of more than ninety five percent of heart attacks. So heart attacks are generally caused by a clot in the heart, which is formed by movement of the stiffened wall that cracks open, exposes some of the cholesterol plaque that's been newly laid down by the diet you ate in the last year or two, not the diet you ate twenty years ago or ten years ago. After the year, after years of having soft plaque that does not rupture and cause a heart attack, it gets invaded with smooth muscle, scar tissue, and calcifications. And those plaques that were dangerous, called vulnerable plaques, become hard and calcified, and they become more obstructive plaques. The obstructive, the word obstructive means they start to occlude the lumen and interfere with blood flow. The older the plaque, the more it obstructs blood flow the less likely it can cause a heart attack because the cholesterol or the fatty portion is separated from the lumen, from the, from the center part of where the blood flows by a, by a big calcified barrier. You could say the calcification yeah. barrier makes the cholesterol part of it no longer vulnerable or dangerous. So the, calcifi the calcification score can represent your overall risk for the way you've been eating the, your, your whole life. But if you've gone from a not so good diet to a better diet, you could still have a poor calcium score from the way you used to eat, but it not would, would not reflect your current risk. Your current, because your risk is better ascertained by your blood pressure, your body fat, and analysis of your present diet than it would be by a calcium score on your, of your heart. So yes, I would say to you, I'd check your body fat, I would... Have, make sure you're exercising regularly and check your oxidized LDL. And if your oxidized LDL is favorable, reflecting because you're eating so healthfully, I would encourage you not to worry about your disease of heart disease, your heart disease okay. risk. Okay, that's good. Now, do you have any feeling about statins for those who feel like they need to take them? Yeah, I mean, well, statins, especially for women for primary prevention, have not been shown to be effective they, they benefit maybe about one in a thousand people, one in a thousand users. So they're mm. generally not very effective for primary prevention, unless the cholesterol is, is astronomically high, is very high. We're talking about an LDL above 150. Unless your LDL cholesterol is above 150, I wouldn't consider that in a woman who's otherwise healthy. But then you're looking at people who have other risk factors like obesity, diabetes, poor diets with high cholesterol. And maybe for them, I would say, well, keep on the statin until you get your health improved in a better shape. But generally speaking, statins slow down the weight loss. They increase the risk of diabetes. They worsen glucose control. And because becoming a healthy centenarian, which is kind of our goal, we're never gonna, not going to live forever. We're all going to face our death. But we want to be healthy in the last 20 years of our life. And statins um, have an effect to make us more insulin resistant. 
which then means we're aging faster. It raises mm. our, our response to, uh, to carbohydrate, making us more. And so it's not going to prolong lifespan um, as it's lowering cholesterol. So it's better to be able to avoid a statin because the risk, the chance of benefit is so slight and the chance of risk or slowing the age or accelerating aging is, is strong. So I usually don't recommend it. Most of obviously people that come to me on a statin don't need them anymore. They come off them, they're losing weight, they're getting healthy. So it's rare that I would leave a person on a statin, but may occasionally it happens because some, you know. Okay, I get it. My LDL was 148 this year and it's ranged mm. from 127 to 175. So I think mm. I better get that oxidized LDL as soon as I can find out where and how to get it because my primary care physician couldn't do it for me. All right. And can I query that? Do you exercise regularly? Do you know your body fat percent? What's your height and weight? Yeah, I'm 5'3". I'm about 115. And when I go on the scale with that has the body fat percentage, it's between 19 and 22. Okay. So I think I'm good there. My lipoprotein little a is 14. So that's good. And that's where I'm at. Okay. Okay. I'm not going to worry. Right. It's probably, <laughs> the risk is probably insignificant. Good. So let's continue on heart disease. Is there anything you want to add more related to the latest research? That yeah, so should... let me add a few things. Yeah. Number one, there's been a myth that still seems to be going around with still a lot of plant-based eaters, that for people with heart disease or any other disease for that matter, that lowering the fat content of their diet is beneficial. Mm. And that means what, reducing your intake of nuts and seeds might be beneficial to um, protect against heart disease or accelerate its reversal. And that's a, that's a myth and it's incorrect. And I wrote, I published a study in 2021 in the International Journal of Prevention and Reversal that went into, the, that went into this with more than 50 references showing the overwhelming amount of information today to show that the exclusion of nuts and seeds from a diet increases cardiovascular death, irregular heartbeat, and cancer death. So it's not advantageous to remove all the fat out of your diet. It, it showed that, yes, if you do everything right, you could still reverse heart disease taking the nuts and seeds out of a diet. However, you're increasing other risks. Hmm. And the risk you're increasing is atrial fibrillation from the lack of ALA in the diet. ALA comes from walnuts, flax seeds, chia seeds, hemp seeds, which fat with the particularly deficiencies of ALA can lead to increased risk of atrial fibrillation and sudden cardiac death. So utilizing those foods actually protects the heart against irregular heartbeats. And there's, there's so much corroborative evidence today. And we're, we're talking about even, even the seven-day Adventist Health Study 2 with more than 12 other studies of researchers around the wor world corroborating their studies, looking at the same data, showing the same findings, that there's no other food that's more protective against sudden cardiac death and cardiovascular death than the exclusion of nuts and seeds in your diet. So I just want to make that clear that there's no benefit to try to make your diet too low in fat. And it's also a myth to think that the fat you eat is the fat you wear, or eating more nuts and seeds makes for a, a skin on your body. That's also not true. Those claims were based on looking at studies on oil, that mm. Americans get their fat from animal fats and oils. And us nutritarians get our fat from whole food, nuts and seeds and avocados. And so 
any data showing that reducing, there was even a study that showed that reducing fat lowered a woman's risk of breast cancer. Now, you could look at that study and say, well, it's better to have no fat in your diet because a woman has a higher risk of cancer, has a lower risk of cancer, reduces the fat. But they were looking at Americans eating oils and animal fats. It didn't show, then if we look at people adding nuts and seeds to the diet, then you have lower rates of breast cancer. So we can't extrapolate and say because oil, consumption of oil increases body fat, increases heart disease, increases any disease, you can't then extrapolate and say, well, you shouldn't eat a walnut then. Afraid to eat a walnut, you know what I mean? Because when the, when you get a neutral when you get fat from an oil, it spikes the fat in the bloodstream so high that it has to be stored and turns on fat storage hormones. Also, it it doesn't contain the fiber, the phenols, the lignins, the bio, the sterols, the stanols, all these protective nutrients in nuts and seeds. Also, nuts and seeds the fats go into the bloodstream so slowly as opposed to rapidly that the body preferentially burns it for energy instead of storing it as fat. And it has a suppressive effect on the, both the appetite and apostat, making people satisfied with less calories. Whereas mm. oil is an appetite stimulant, the combination of vegetables, beans, and nuts and seeds in the meal is like a gastric um, inhibitor, gastric emptying inhibitor, which makes you have lower your lower your caloric desires. So it leads to more weight loss, the judicious use we're talking about. And obviously, you know, I take care of a lot of overweight people with diabetes and heart disease. And we give them approximately a half an ounce of nuts and seeds with each meal, approximately. So somewhere between one ounce and two ounces a day, even for people that need to lose weight. Obviously, some people who are athletic and physically fit and need more calories can eat more, but that's the level we're giving people who are overweight looking to lose weight. But we don't take it out completely because you get more problems when you take it out completely and more risks. Okay, I'm going to say two words, olive oil. There's Is always- that that woman who's, um, who was Popeye's girlfriend? <laughs> olive oil. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> she was pretty skinny, olive oil, lanky. Anyway, there are always studies coming out that are praising olive oil. And even some of your colleagues who are promoting a whole food plant diet praise some of these articles that promote olive oil. I'm looking at one from 2021. Recently, Mediterranean diet reduces arteriosclerosis progression in coronary heart disease. Is that another case where they're not comparing apples and apples or at least comparing olive oil with better sources of fat? Yes. And there were studies that have done that too, that compared olive oil to eating nuts and seeds. And like in the Prevamed study, the longest lived group were the group that were eating nuts and seeds at baseline. And then went randomized to the group that were told to eat nuts and seeds, not olive oil. So yes, even though olive oil had protective effects compared to other types of oils or animal fat oils, but did not have better protective effects than nuts and seeds. In fact, nuts and seeds had much better protective effects than olive oil did. But the main problem with, see, so it, those studies do speak to the incorrect notion that taking the, all the fat out of the diet is beneficial. Because even a little bit of olive oil might be better for some people than having no fat. That's mm. the bottom line. But that doesn't mean that I don't, I can't say with some degree of scientific integrity that olive oil increases risk of breast cancer. And the reason I can say olive oil increases risk of breast cancer is because it's so fattening and it's an appetite stimulant. 
And in a person who's wasting away, who's anorexic in a nursing home, giving a little oil could be okay to get them to increase their appetite. But for, for most Americans aren't in that state. Most Americans are grossly overweight. Right. And giving an, a weight-promoting food or a food that inhibits weight loss to a person that's overweight because the major driver of breast cancer is fats, body fat stores, which then increase body aromatase activity, which is estrogen production, increases the, the production of cytokines and lipokines, and increases insulin resistance, which is the trifecta for developing breast cancer. So I could say that most people thinking olive oil is a health food are increasing the risk of are accelerating the aging process because it's because they're making them gain weight or preventing them from losing weight. When you take people even one or two servings of oil a week, because the oil rushes into the bloodstream so rapidly, it turns on fat storage mechanisms, which then inhibit fat loss. So the little bit of oil in their diet is inhibiting their weight loss. They can't get the fat off their body, which they could have gotten off if they had an equal amount of calories from nuts and seeds. And we're saying here that isocaloric exchanges from oil to nuts and seeds, or even carbohydrates like potato and rice to nuts and seeds leads to further weight loss and more lifespan promoting parameters. But since the oil is an appetite stimulant, it's people who eat oil desire more calories mm. and removing the oil and substituting nuts and seeds makes you desire less calories, number one. And number two, the nut and seed calories, they're not all biologically available because they don't get all absorbed into the body like when you eat oil. Part of those calories pass through into the toilet bowl undigested because of the fat binding sterols and stanols and nuts and seeds carry the fat out into the, into the toilet. And so you don't get all the fat. So you felt like you ate 200 calories, but 200 calories didn't come into the body, only 160 calories came in. So you're satisfied like you ate 200 calories, but then all the calories never come in. So you, when you eat oil, you get the whole 200 calories, but you want 300 calories now after you have the oil and all the 200 calories came in. So if you recognize that body fat is the major risk factor for most chronic illness, for most lifespan shortening illnesses, then you have to recognize that olive oil is a fattening food and has to be very, can't be played with haphazardly. Beautiful. I take the 200 calories of nuts and seeds yumminess any day. They're delicious. Okay. A couple more things on heart. What about if your HDL is really low? and you're a nutritarian? Well, I answer that with the typical questions are, do you need snow shovels if you live in Florida? <laughs> I think if it's not gonna snow, you really don't need a snow blower in your, in your garage in Florida, right? And what okay. happens is the, when you don't have um, LDL-laden plaque, cholesterol-filled plaque, what is your body gonna produce HDL for? So you could say that HDL production is a sign of heart disease. Higher levels are produced by the body in mm. response to higher levels of LDL. Mm. When you have low levels of LDL and no heart disease, your body's not going to just make LDL for no reason. They make HDL for no reason. And worldwide, lower levels of HDL are linked to lower rates of heart disease because people who don't have plaque, don't make heart, who don't eat better, don't need to make HDL. However, in high meat eating or cholesterol eating or saturated fat eating populations, then a high HDL shows protective effects because when you're eating cheese and bacon and hamburgers, then it's better to have a high HDL if should you have a lot of plaque in your blood vessels. Very good. Okay, B12, we know it's important to take it. I take your woman's daily, which I know has about uh, 75 micrograms, I think, in two capsules. 
What if your B12 is really high? Someone in my family has a nutritarian, has B12 at around $16.99 and out of range over $2,000 on multiple B12 tests. Well, a very Is high that a problem? It may or may not be a problem because some early stage cancers to create especially um, bloodborne cancers or bone marrow-based cancers that may mm. not manifest themselves to later years, it could be a sign of an occult cancer, a cancer not yet diagnosed yet. Ooh. So it's more indication that the person should be very careful with their diet and not play, you know, and and, and almost eat a diet as if, you know, very, uh, a really healthy diet to stop anything from forming. So it could be signs that something's wrong with the body because when you have, you know, extra production of cells, your body produces more B12. So are there better tests like methylmalonic acid, homocysteine or something to see if it might be a problem or? Well, if they don't need to take B12, but taking B12 is not their problem. It's the body's production of it's the high levels. That's the problem. So methylmalonic acid or homocysteine elevate with B12 deficiency. So when people have a B12 test that comes back in the middle range between 300 and 600 to ascertain whether a deficiency or in the lower range between 250, around 200 to 400, we don't know if a B12 deficiency exists at that range. It may be the normal range for that person. Mm. So getting a homocysteine or a methylmalonic acid, that would elevate, which would confirm that low level is a B12 deficiency. So B12 itself is not that accurate a test. Uh, methylmalonic acid starts to elevate, you have more data to suggest the person needs more B12. And one in a hundred people do need more B12 than the standard amount in my supplement, for example, because as they age, they could develop a form of pernicious anemia or, or something where they, their B12 requirements might be increased. So occasionally drawing a B12 or a meth MMA or homocysteine every three to five years might be, might be advantageous. Okay. Changing the subject to vaccines, which is kind of a timely topic. We've come out of the pandemic. COVID-19 is still with us. Can I just uh, remind you to, yes. um, because we discussed B12 and, and we're talking about supplements for vegans, let's broach on maybe later this omega-3 question. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Well, now we'll go to vaccines. Okay. okay. So I follow you in your forums and I know how you feel about uh, the COVID-19 vaccine. I'm just curious um, about the flu vaccine, the COVID vaccine, and the shingles vaccine. What your thoughts are in 2024? Yikes. <laughs> <laughs> I hate to say how I really feel. <laughs> okay. Because no matter what you say, people on every side are going to attack you. You know what I mean? Sure. Better just keep your mouth shut. It's about <laughs> something that's about politics, you know, but I'm saying, but I say, you know, Talking about narcissism and sociopathic be and selfish behavior and it's not politics. You know what I'm saying here? It's not politics. It's it's talking about qualities of humans that are that are useful and 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 courageous and respectable and have with mm. people have goodwill for other people and and are compassionate to others. It's not politics. There's nothing wrong with calling Trump out as a narcissistic sociopath who's a da dangerous person for the future of this country. It's not, not politics. That's just 
you know, because there are there are Repub there are certainly there are certainly very um, respectable Republicans who don't have those same narcissistic, sociopathic, and lack of compassion qualities. You know what I mean? We can. Is can there make- a vaccine against narcissism? <laughs> <laughs> How did I get into that? Oh, because uh, you asked me about this political issue. Because we're talking about you. That no matter what you say, you're going to create enemies, right? Yes, it's yeah. very unfortunate because I know you. You are into facts and truth, and <laughs> integrating all the information you get and looking at it from a big picture and coming out with brilliant recommendations. Thank you. Appreciate that. Okay. So we recognize that the COVID vaccines are some of the most toxic and dangerous vaccines ever introduced into modern, in modern times, right? Vaccines are a new experiment in modern history. It may be true that the cumulative effects of many vaccines, especially when you're in young in life may increase your risk of autoimmunity later on, or even cancer down the road. We don't know if that's true because those studies are not done. They're not, nobody wants to look at that. It may be mm-hmm. the case. There are some indications that overly bar- bombarding the immune system when you're so young could have some um, negative effects because we see some increase of infant and childhood mortality due to excessive vaccines in countries where they have excessive vaccines. So certainly um, giving COVID vaccine to children and babies when their risks are low and they're already getting bombarded with Sony vaccines to me, I'm, I'm really um, obviously against that, especially the risk of COVID. And certainly um, the risk of a COVID-related da- damage is so low if you're eating healthfully and living a healthy life as well. That's really an important point. And yes. we don't hear enough about that. And that's true of the flu as well. Yes. That we could get a lot of protection just by taking care of ourselves with a healthy diet and lifestyle. Not a lot of protection, but maybe a hundredfold protection from a vaccine. <laughs> Okay. Thousandfold the protection of a, from a vaccine. Let's be clear here. Most people who, get, who have an increased morbidity and mortality from COVID and the flu are people who have comorbidities and have bad health habits. It would be very oh. rare. To, but okay, that said, um, our immunity does wind down as we age, hmm. especially with people eating more standard diet. And my immunity is going to wind down as I age, but not maybe at the age of 60. Maybe it'll wind down when I'm 85 at a later point. And when your immunity starts to become more susceptible to infection, as it as the ability of the immune system winds down, shingles can be very um, can be very severely de- debilitating and painful. But the vaccine, which reduces risk some degree, let's say forty percent, doesn't last forever. Maybe it lasts for ten, you know, six to eight, ten years. So I would choose not to get a shingles vaccine for myself because I feel my immunity is strong, even though I'm 70 years old. But for another person at the age of 60, because they're eating poorly and not in great health, maybe they should get the the shingles vaccine at age 60. Hmm. So the medical profession recommends that, you know, everybody gets it at a younger age. And I'm suggesting, well, base it on how healthy you are. If you're really healthy, postpone it long because it's not going to last forever. And, and, and so usually it's recommended two shots. But I don't think the shingles vaccine is anywhere near like a dangerous vaccine as is the COVID vaccine. And and because you don't have to repeat the shingles vaccine every year for it to be effective, you can not do it now for 10 years. And then you then if you and then whereas the COVID vaccine doesn't even work that well. And if it does work a little bit, you have to keep repeating it to keep it working. And you keep exposing yourself to more significantly um, dangerous antigens. So, so the answer is yes, I would sometimes selectively recommend the shingles vaccine, especially people as they age and get older. 
And I might consider it myself maybe in 10 or 15 years, but not right now at age 70. I feel I'm still too healthy right now. <laughs> and may Similar, that Similarly to the pneumonia vaccine. Because before we had all these people dying of cancer and heart disease, the leading cause of death was pneumonia. And as our, and we get more um, susceptible to infection in later life, but good oral hygiene and good health habits decreases our risk of pneumonia. And But in any case, maybe at the age of 85 or 90, it might getting the, the pneumococcal vaccine is, is a good, maybe would be a wise thing to do. But for a person who's not in good health, maybe at age 70, getting the pneumococcal vaccine is a good thing for them to do. So I probably so I might recommend some of those vaccines and possibly not think that the flu vaccine is very important because it's not a very effective vaccine in that the antigens for the flu are changing all the time. Many years the flu vaccine doesn't have the right antigens. And I think it's um and most of us it's a mild enough disease in healthy people not to be overly concerned with that. And it's a vaccine you have to keep repeating every single year versus the pneumococcal vaccine or the shingles vaccine, you don't have to keep repeating every single year. I have that some- doesn't not, That doesn't mean in an institutionalized setting, like a nursing home for people eating that poor diet, I don't think the flu vaccine might prevent some degree of deaths. It probably could. And in that, in that situation, I'd probably recommend it. Very good. I know some people young that appear to be in good health and good weight that are experiencing long COVID and- some have been vaccinated, and then some people are experiencing, or they believe they are experiencing serious problems from the vaccine. Is there any information out there that gives these people hope? Certainly, their diet should be the best that it can, but do you have any recommendations? Do we know anything yet? Yeah. You know, it's, it's all we could do is live as healthfully as we possibly can. And avoid the, the and avoid medicinal substances that could be that could poison us, mm-hmm. you know. And one reason we live so healthfully is to avoid the need for needless and dangerous medical care, because medical care is a risk factor, and one of the major risk factors of death is exposure to medical care. Mm-hmm. And it's all types of drugs and medical procedures and medical tests. So, you know. So I guess the fact that people, um whether they have long COVID from COVID or whether they have a long uh, a reaction to vaccine, all they could do is try to live as healthfully as they can and reduce their personal stress, get sleep, take the right supplements, eat as healthy as they can, and, and hopefully the body will come around. I mean, even a person who smokes cigarettes for 20 years, the risk every year they're off smoking, the risk of lung cancer goes down. So after 20 years of coming off Cigarettes, the risk of lung cancer is only a little higher than a person risk of a person who never smoked, and very and still very low because they're off cigarettes for 20 years. So the bottom line is, it takes years to build back your from a, from such a risk. Maybe it could take. Maybe this person's going to be well in four years, five years, eight years. But just keep living healthfully and let the miraculous self healing body eventually make it do its thing to recover yourself. You can't, you know, take artificial substances to build back good health. You have to earn great health. That doesn't mean that taking, you know, you know, mixed mushrooms and a little bit of curcumin, turmeric, and astragalus, or that there aren't certain things that could help people. Green tea, there aren't certain things that might help people. Making sure their omega-3 index is, is adequate, that we there might some, be some things that might be an aid to a person, but it's not magic. It's still going to take a long time for this person to build back their their health again after such a severe injury. Hmm. 
Omega-3 fatty acids and DHA and EPA. You mentioned omega-3 just now. Can we jump into that a bit? I think it's really important because it's on my mind so much. And the reason it's on my mind so much is because I've been involved with the plant-based movement with my friends and mentors and people I really care about for now more than, well, I'm 70 years old. I got into this when I was like a teenager, like 15 or 16 years old. So I knew people like, you know, Dr. Vetrano and Joy Gross and Kiki Sidwa and all these mentors of mine who are older than me and um, who ate super healthy plant-based diets. They didn't, they, you can't be using an example. Oh, they were junk food vegans. That's why they developed dementia or Parkinson's. But even now, one of my favorite people, Joy Gross, just passed away. She was one of the original, um, you know, important people in the American natural hygiene community for years ago. And she was living in a nursing home with dementia for the last five years or something <laughs> like that, you know. So we're talking about that. Um, all of my um, people I really cared about and knew very well, and so many of them in the plant-based movements who did not die of heart attacks and strokes or cancers, wound up with neurologic deficits in later life. And I'm saying due to DHA, due to not knowing that they should be supplementing with an omega-3 fatty acids like DHA or EPA. My own experience as a physician taking care of this plant-based community, and not a plant-based community of junk food eating vegans, but a plant-based community of super healthy eating vegans mm -hmm. who develop neurologic deficits, dementia, and Parkinson's. Dr. Petrano developed dementia. Dr. Shelton got Parkinson's. Kiki Sidwa got Parkinson's. Doc, you know, I could go on and on about all these people I knew and all the patients I've had who developed, who were healthy vegans. And we have more than a dozen studies. And I should say this carefully. Every study that looked at a low omega-3 index and brain size or cognitive impairment shows that low omega-3 index is linked, causally linked with brain shrinkage and, and cognitive impairment in later life. So it's not a controversial subject because there's no data that suggests otherwise. They're all corroborative, meaning show the same thing. But you still have these people with large um, megaphones in the vegan community say, ah, we don't need supplements. We're fine the way we are and 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 don't take anything. And it's all, I heard one of the um, leaders in the vegan community be on the Truth About Health series, somebody questioned him, my omega-3 index is one, should I do anything? And this leader in the vegan community said, nah, don't worry about it. You know, so he just about destined this person to dementia in later life by not telling him it's anything to be concerned about. That's how, I, there, there's so much prejudice and bias within the carnivore and the keto, but also in the plant-based community. They don't want to admit there's any possible negative about among plant-based eating, and they're so religiously protective of the plant-based diet and their prior proclamations about plant-based eating as being so perfect that they see it as a personal affront, and they'll pull one study or one argue, one hypothetical argument to protect their viewpoints, like everybody does. They try to come to some viewpoint that they want to protect, and they'll look for some um, some reasoning or some study or some hypothesis as why they can argue why their viewpoint is right, instead of looking at all the data in an unbiased way. And then people will say, well, Dr. Furman's biased, he sells a DHA. You know, it's like, it's like, okay, we're all biased. Everybody's got a predetermined viewpoint, <laughs> but like, I have but no. You're right. What's that? 
But you're right. Not only am I right, but I don't really, I'm not really biased in the sense that I could explain why I'm not biased, but you know, I'm not, I didn't really start out as a, as a, as any, you could say predetermined agenda of some dietary model I want a person to follow. If they feel too better with a little bit of egg white in their diet or a little bit of this or a little bit of fish, I'm not, so I'm not so much. So I'm going to try to ascertain what's best for, for the individual and not use a predetermined bias to put up, put my bias on them, number one. But number two is that um, I've been blessed. You know, I'm blessed to have affected a, a lot of people in my life in a positive sense. I've been very lucky to have opportunities to be on television, on PBS and have best-selling books, and frankly, to make millions of dollars selling millions of books. Um, I'm not, I don't need a little extra hundred dollars in my pocket from convincing the next person to take a DHA supplement. It's not my driving factor. I just want to do what's best for people, frankly. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm, uh, and I, and as I'm getting older, obviously, um, I'm developing more interest and more, um, how should I say, more importance of people having robust emotional health and trying to explain why people don't follow a healthy diet when they know it's best for them. Why they go off and commits and continue to um, abuse their bodies with self-destructive behavior, and that's really so. I'm I'm getting a lot of personal reward. I work hard in what I do because I enjoy it. And as you know, at my retreat here in San Diego, I like um, interacting with people and still keeping, you know, getting to know people and working with them and helping them, which is a lot of fun. And it feels great to do that. My wife too. My wife loves the fact that we um, are doing this, but we have people that come to us and we still interact with individuals and get to know them and make lasting friendships that sometimes can last for the rest of our lives. So that's all still good stuff. I want to talk more about people's emotion and anxiety, but just one more question on this uh, omega-3 fatty acid, DHA, EPA thing. What are the tests that we can take to know our levels if we need supplementation or not? I'm a, I supplement. I take your DHA purity. And I have that's, flaxseeds. That's the key question. The key question is because I've been looking at these numbers over the years, and it, it actually affects your pro, your you could say proclivity to something like Parkinson's or Parkinson's dementia syndrome, because obviously it make, makes to the brain toxins or pesticides or chemicals can affect the brain more negatively when your DHA is low. And, to, and, and also the number one cause of Parkinson's disease though, just so people are aware, is the chemical used in dry cleaning clothing. And that, so working in a dry cleaner or having your clothing dry cleaned regularly is a risk factor of a Parkinson's disease. Wow. So just throw that out there. It's not all about food, obviously. Even though this, this even though you're, this is all about food, it's not really all about food. Of course. <laughs> wow, I didn't know that. And people are drinking plastic in plastic water bottles, and they're taking their Starbucks in, in cardboard cups that are lined with plastic, pouring up steaming hot coffee into cardboard cups that are lined with plastic, drinking millions of particles of plastic in their body. I mean, people do all kinds of crazy stuff. You know. Yeah, they do. So we don't have to worry about measuring. We just have to have a good lifestyle and diet. No, no the measuring is important. So I'm saying but over the years, it seems like the number is six. The omega-3 index should be above six. So I used to think the omega-3 index above four was sufficient, but you get most protection when the omega-3 index is above six. The study on 150 vegans that was published by the, uh, that was funded by the Nutrition Research Foundation 
we did about 150, 160 vegans in the study. And we found that about uh, two thirds of them had levels below four. And we mm -hmm. thought that above four was probably good enough. But that means that two thirds were below four, about 25% were below three. But that means about 80% or more were below six of that was people um, on a vegan diet. Um, so there are some people who levels can run six, seven, or eight that don't supplement, but that's rare. That's not common. Um, even with dietary gymnastics, it's hard to you know how much eat more flax seeds, eat more walnuts. You still can't. It's it's so genetically determined that the number of conversion is so based on the genes we inherit that you just can't over. It's hard to get it all, you know, get it um, to your numbers up if you're not taking DHA and EPA. So the test is the omega three index, which is part of the omega quant test or the omega. Or a, there's one other test for another name, but most of um, most reputable labs can do an omega three index. You know the omega quant. I think LabCorp does the omega quant test. Okay. For those of people who can't find it, we have a little um, cardboard that we mail out to people. They can do a finger stick test on the send the cardboard in. They can send it in ma a mail order test the omega three index. I do think it's important to know your omega three index at least a couple of times in your life to check it out, to see, like, let's say the level of DHA you're taking, because genetics plays such a strong factor, is your level good enough? Is it below four? Is it above four? Is it above five? Is it above six? So you can adjust the dose down or up mm. to, to keep your level in the most favorable way. I think that's, um, that's important. Very good. That's on my list, my to-do list. Okay. So you mentioned the challenges people have with their diet and the emotional aspect of it. And it's a topic that's becoming more popular. We're finally acknowledging that we have feelings yeah. and it affects our life and our health. Right. What are you doing about that? I've been um, doing a lot of speaking and discussion and about this issue and more, more of late because generally people come to me, they're not people who are eat, already eating healthfully, they're mostly people who are not all eating healthfully and are overweight. And now they come into my retreat, they stay here a few months to get rid of their acute addictive drives. And then they're sent back home again with the tools and the skills to live in that environment. And now what constitutes some people at higher risk of falling back to unhealthy eating or, or a person who's gonna stay on the program continuing to lose weight and continuing to take better care of their health. And it has to do with their emotional health and whether they, and we'll, let's, we can talk about that now, but there are things that we have identified as being risk factors for self-destructive behaviors mm. and inability to follow a diet. And there's a lot of things going on here and we could just touch, touch on the, you know, the tip of the iceberg. But one thing I talk about just to start out with something, this achievement of robust emotional health is that you're not going to be thrust back into an environment where nobody is eating unhealthfully around you. You're going to be in parties. You're going to have other workers. You're going to have your family. And you're trying to eat healthy in an unhealthy world. And people have the effect to going to want to sabotage you. And people are social animals. And they, if you put them on too much social stress, it can be a negative factor that they resort back to their old way of eating and starts to gain weight again. So there's a couple of things here. One is that so much of our socialization process in the United States and in Western Europe has to do with externally generated self-esteem. Mm -hmm. these, these externally generated 
um, factors, how well people like you, whether they approve of you, whether you can look respectable in their eyes, and whether you can look respectable in your own eyes, because you comparatively have, have some achievements. So you look better, you're wealthier, you dress better, you're, um, you're, you, you act in a way to get the approval of other people, you get the likes on Instagram, you post your, so you are in some way trying to elevate your own self-esteem by certain personal qualities you're trying to promote in yourself. So, so, and I'm saying to you that that's not, that's the comic book, that's a pop culture way of happiness. It's like eating junk food. It doesn't lead to long-term happiness, peace and satisfaction with a person's life. The more you go after external generated self-esteem, the approval of other people, the more you just want it more and more. It's a never ending bottomless pit that, that just keeps going on and on. And a person who, you know, who, whatever. Um, and if you're, and if your life is driven by other people, by having other people's need to approve of you, then you're going to have difficulty eating differently than them because you're going to get their disapproval. And it leads to a strong, that's one significant element. So we want to create and build people's internally generated self-esteem. So you feel that you're a leader and not a follower and you don't need other people to approve of you. And you approve of yourself, not because you're superior, not because you have qualities that make you feel better than another person, but because you feel that you are the same as other people because every person is equally important and because you care about people and you care about your ability to use your abilities to have creative goodwill for them. And as you can use your personal blessings or your personal, what you've learned in your life or your personal attributes to have, to be kinder, more useful to humanity or to people or to people in your environment, and to have trying to have creative goodwill for the people you meet is not the same thing as trying to be superior. Take your own ego out of it, because now a person, once your ego is out of the equation and and everyone matters as much as you do, hmm. then if a person says to you, Oh, if I had to eat that way, I'd rather die, you know, because who wants to give a, eat like a rabbit and live on carrot sticks the rest of your life? So now you're not looking for a comeback. You're not looking to make yourself feel better to make them feel worse. You're seeing this as an opportunity. Oh, well, thank you. They appreciate that they said that, whether it was whether they whether it was some criticism of you or put down of you, but you see it as an opportunity because now I have an opportunity to show them I care about them, that I can show them some love, some interest, and and maybe have a a purpose of having a better, a good effect in their life. And the good effect may be about how showing how much you care about them. It may be that maybe not benefit them until five years from now or never benefit them. But it doesn't matter if what you say never benefits them because your purpose was to have something positive that may have positively affected their life. Not to get them to like you better, not to push your, have you them elevate the way they see you in their eyes, but just to think in a pure sense, what could I say that could help this person in some way? that may be able to help this person in some way. When you, when you bring it down to the simplest um, basics here about your purpose in interacting with people, then it doesn't matter if people approve of you or not. And then you build better emotional health and you're not under the whim of whether your people around you are liking you or whether you're feeling that you're impressing them or not. 
You're just thinking of how you can best show them compassion and goodwill. And this is what people need to know because at our retreat here too, we're teaching them about food, but teaching about food and food science and recipes and how to make the diet taste good and how to make it convenient, tasty, can, you know, and easy to do and all these things and getting your taste buds used to it and getting liking the food is all good, but you still got to fix your emotional health because people have a tendency to be looking for negativity and they have this pro-negativity bias as a means of elevating their own ego. They almost are looking for things to dislike and complain about and looking for reasons to be angry as a reasons of, of some perverted way the self gets elevated in some way. Feeling things, and we're saying here, we need to develop a positivity bias, not a negativity bias. We're looking to see the, the goodness around us, the beauty, the aesthetic structure of the world around us, the inherent goodness in people that can be brought out with proper training and knowledge and education, and the fact that, so we're to actually, um, you know, there's evil around us, but we, you know, obviously, <laughs> we're not completely living in a dream world, but we still want to have a positive view of humanity and do the best we can to improve the well-being, both physically and emotionally, of the people of, of our world and of all peoples. Mm. And as we do that, then we become less stressed out by negativity around us, more gratitude, more seeking, seeking to appreciate the goodness around us, more content with ourselves, less angst in bed at night, unable to sleep, things worrying us, less concern something said, somebody said something that wasn't favorable about us. You know what I mean? That there's all kinds of nonsensical and attack people, people who look to be little others in the world that we don't have to let them rule our, our emotions. And, and so there's, so in other words, what I'm saying right now is you need to develop some of these, some wisdom and robust emotional health to be able to be a good caretaker of your own body. Because why would we put something in our body that's not in our own best long-term interest? And the answer is there's, a, there's it's complicated why people do that, you know? It's very complicated. Society has done a great job of manipulating the way we think. Right. My sister was at a doctor's office last week and she overheard somebody say, why would anyone want to die healthy? Why would anyone? It's hard to understand. Yeah, that's. Well, of course, you want to live to an old age with quality life and be healthy and then pass, you know, in right. your sleep or something like that. That's how I envision dying healthy. Yes. And most people that take think that way, they they live for many years suffering and with a poor quality of life. And it's the tremendous increased suffering. The way, the reason we take good care of our health and eat so healthfully is because it makes us happier, hmm. more peaceful, mm -hmm. less fearful, and it gives us a better quality of life that we can be fully active and have our full mental faculties to enjoy the world around us. So we can appreciate the world and appreciate our lives more. And we're all going to die someday, but we want to be fully living every day we're alive. And that's why we do this, obviously. Obviously. So it's, sad, it's sad that so many people, and when we're trying to lessen human tragedy, and there's so much needless human tragedy from the poor diets people eat, okay, including, including anger, negativity, and the inability to think logically, because the junk food eating or the poor diet people eat affects their ability to think logically and to be, even the, you know, I, I wrote that book, Fast Food Genocide. Which My favorite. Oh, that thanks. was your best. Thank you so much. <laughs> So it's, and by the way, 
that book was not one of my best-selling books. I have seven New York Times bestsellers and that book was not a bestseller. So one of our favorite books is not, you know, because this obviously it's not what people necessarily see as their primary, but they would, if they read it, I'm sure they'd find it interesting. Absolutely. They don't know, that, they don't know yeah. how interesting it is. But in the book, it makes the point that poor nutrition after the Civil War by Caucasian Southerners eating molasses and pork and bacon and corn, their diet was niacin and, and deficient, and it led to a disease called pellagra and other mental disorders, which accelerates anger, violence, and even could have, could have exacerbated lynching and the aggressive violence against blacks when, they were for, when the slaves were freed. And I'm bringing that up because we see this way of thinking today. We see people with conspiracy thinks and anger and violence and negativity, and they're all, and so it, it exacerbates their tendency towards the inability to weigh evidence, to think logically, to, and to have goodwill for others because their brain isn't working right because of poor nutrition. So poor nutrition affects how you think, not just you know how you were raised and who you were raised by and your environment, which affects it, but also how you eat affects it and your and your inability to think logically and and more completely in a more complete fat weighing evidence. It's almost a catch-22, because if you're not thinking well, how are you going to be able to think yourself into improving your diet and getting your brain better? That's exactly the point. And also, so we were some left with some with a catch-22 here, that the people who need this the most are the people least likely to make the change. But I'm hopeful, and hopeful that the more people that jump onto this and get the knowledge kind of moves the bar a little bit, and other people through... I don't want to say osmosis, but through some sort of change in society will help move yeah. the bar. Yes. Growth is slow, but it happens. And we're, right. all, we're all doing our part to have it. To okay. Have it well, this yeah. has been an enlightening hour. Thank you so much for everything that you do. Any last words? I mean, you've been eloquent all along and Thank really sum things up very nicely. Thank you so much. And... um <clears throat> If people, you know, if there's still newcomers to the nutritarian way of eating or thinking, my most recent book is Eat for Life. I'm mm -hmm. just mentioning that because people grab it, go back to my earlier book, Eat to Live, and I'd rather they go over to a newer book than an older book, which is more current, more consistent with my current thinking. You know what I mean? That's good to know. And I will make sure I don't refer them to Eat to Live. I'll refer people to Eat for Life. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. okay. Eat for Life. A pleasure. Okay, all the best to you. Here. Take care, Dr. Joel Furman, my right. favorite awesome. doctor. Thanks Thank for you. joining me on It's All About Food. Bye. That's our show for today. Thanks for joining me. I'm Karen Hartglass. You've been listening to It's All About Food. Send your comments and questions to info at realmeals.org and visit me at responsibleeatingandliving.com where we have plenty of recipes and all of the It's All About Food episodes are archived there since 2009. Have a delicious week, everybody.